Welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. Welcome back to The Motivated Mind, a top 100 health podcast, thanks to each of you. This is episode 324, and I'm your host, Scott Lynch. Thanks so much for listening. If I've brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe or follow button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook and let me know what you want to hear more of. And please be sure to share the podcast. Today, we have another special guest that joins the pod, Hazard Lee, a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot who began his career flying the F-16 Viper and author of The Art of Clear Thinking. Based on years of experience making high-stakes split-second decisions as an Air Force fighter pilot, The Art of Clear Thinking teaches readers to make clear decisions in their everyday life. As a flight commander, he led his pilots into combat during one of the most intense periods during the war in Afghanistan. There, he flew over 80 combat missions and became the only fighter pilot to ever fly two different types of jets into combat on the same day while supporting troops under fire. Hazard was selected as the top instructor pilot of the year for the largest F-16 base in the world. He was then handpicked to fly the F-35, the most advanced and expensive weapon system in history, which was still in development at the time. During his last role on active duty, Hazard became the chief of training systems for the largest training base in the world, leading the development of new technology and teaching methods to train future fighter pilots. Hazard and I dive into his journey of becoming a U.S. Air Force fighter pilot, experiencing nine G's of force and how this impacts your body, the power of debriefing and how we can implement it into our lives, how fighter pilots train for peak human performance, the cognitive load of decision making while flying at high speeds, exercise red flag combat training, the power of cross-checking, an alternative to multitasking, understanding power laws, breaking down the time we have to make decisions and its benefits, the formula of expected value, and finally, techniques that the U.S. Air Force fighter pilots leverage to stay calm in high-stress situations. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, 
It's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. What, three days ago you you launched the book? Man, that's got to feel amazing. You've spent six years building this thing and experiencing it. How, how does it feel to finally get the book out to the world? It's good. And it's great getting some feedback because I think there's only so much like glitz and uh, and noise you can make. But ultimately, the book has to do two things. It has to entertain people and it has to spark some new ideas. You have to get something from it. And so it's been great hearing from people saying that they've really enjoyed it, especially the audiobook. Uh, we did something that had never been done before. We recorded parts of it in the jet. Not all of it, just the intros to the chapters, but it was it was a pretty unique thing that we did. So it's great to get it out into the wild. It's been a busy week. I've been doing a lot of interviews because it's not over. Once it goes out, you're you're trying to trying to push it out and busy traveling all over the country, doing a lot of interviews. But it's interesting because there's such a long feedback loop. I've been working on this for years. There were points I wrote every word in it. There were points where, uh, you know, you think you're going crazy because you're just writing and you have, you know, you're 50,000 words in and nobody's seen the work and you're, you're just, you're just massaging this, uh, giant, it's almost like a cargo ship. There's just so many parts to it and it's so big and bulky. I think we can all remember back in, in high school or college doing, you know, editing a two or three page paper. And this is 200, 300 page, uh, book. That's a good point that I've never thought about. I've interviewed quite a bit of authors. At what point are you like, all right, it's done? Because, you know, writing is never actually done, right? It's a very iterative process, feedback, adjust, you know, second volumes, you know, so on and so forth. To you, if there's this short feedback piece, right, where it's not out into the world, how did you register, all right, I feel like this is ready to release to the world instead of like trying to perfect this book? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So as an author, especially as a first-time author, when I would get advice from other authors, they would say the key to writing a book is to write a crappy first draft. And so that's what I did. I wrote a crappy first draft. What they don't tell you, what nobody tells you is if you do that, then you have a lot of work to do. You have <laughs> uh, you know, you have a crappy first draft and it takes a lot of work. So I went through nine revisions to get to where we are now. So that's probably more than the publisher wanted me to. You know, they're trying to get these books out there, but this is everything I got. I, I don't know if I'm going to write another book. I wanted to put everything into this book. So I was kind of a, probably a little bit perfectionist with it. I wanted to make it great. I wanted to pare it down. I wanted each sentence to be, to be really good. And I was a first time author. So it, this is not my profession. So I've spent the last couple of years trying to analyze other books like Malcolm Gladwell's books, Atul Gawande. Uh, who's a surgeon who wrote the Checklist Manifesto. And really what those guys do is they interweave stories, really exciting, suspenseful stories. Because I forget who said it, but they were saying that if all it took was reading information, we'd all have six packs and be billionaires because you can't just learn things from bullet. The best best experience is going out and and living life and living experience. But the second best is learning from other people. So we don't always have to touch a hot stove to know it's hot. We can sometimes see other people touch a hot stove. Now, 
I have a young kid, as do you. Sometimes they do need to touch that hot stove to understand it. But every once in a while, you can learn from somebody else. And that's what I think humans learn best from learning from other people through storytelling. So that's what I try to do with this book. It's suspenseful, exciting stories, some from my time flying, some from key moments in history, and some business decisions that really make the reader feel like they were there. So to go back to your original question, the first couple iterations, first couple drafts, it was all me. Nobody had seen it before. And Eventually, uh, I gave it to the publisher, then they started working on it and having their editors go into it. And after nine revisions, we finally put it out. Mm. So, you know, one thing that I that I heard that I wanted to pick a little bit a thread with is I think that was such an amazing idea of recording the intros of the chapters while you're actually flying. Did you get any pushback from the military, the Air Force, for like having your book up in the cockpit of this jet? Like just because these these things are what? They're worth, I think, what, F-35, 70-something million dollar jet, and the F-18, a 33 million dollar jet? Was there <laughs> you had to have gotten some sort of pushback? Yeah, that so that wasn't done in an F-35. So F-35, like you said, it's I think with inflation, it's about a hundred million dollars a piece now. So pretty pricey. I do work with the Air Force a lot and we make videos and uh, try to make engaging content with them. But yeah, this was a, a S211 Marchetti. So it's a smaller civilian jet. So that's that's what I flew it on because you're right, the military, you know, they, they, there's some rules and regulations regarding that. Yeah. Well, share with us this journey of leading up to becoming a, a fighter pilot. What motivated you to pursue a, a career in aviation? And given that it's it's not an easy achievement. I, I think I read through some of my research that for every 1,000 applicants who apply, it's like three become Air Force pilots. What, what were some of the challenges that you faced along that way? You know, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. When I was five years old, I went to an air show, and this was back in the day when you could sit in the cockpit of an F-16 and F-15, and I put on a helmet, so it looked like a bobblehead back then. But I was hooked after that. And there's not a lot you can do as a kid if you want to be a fighter pilot. It's not like wanting to be an NFL player and there are leagues for that. So I memorized all the jets. I watched all the movies. But it really wasn't until I was a teenager that I got a chance to fly in a Cessna 152. It's almost like a, a flying lawnmower with wings. So just a tiny airplane, tiny engine. And I lived in a, a place called Los Alamos, New Mexico. It's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. It was where the Manhattan Project was. So it uh, it was purposely built to be in the middle of nowhere so it wouldn't be attacked by the Germans or Japanese. And so the airport is on a mesa. And so first time taking off, you're going off this cliff. Pretty Pretty exciting experience. And I was hooked after that. It was really like combining sports with school. You have to study. You have to learn different concepts. But ultimately, you also have to have really good hands to, to fly and land these things. After that, I, I knew I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy, which is one of the primary methods to become a fighter pilot. And so I applied there. I was dead set on going. I had all the posters and, and things like that in my room. But I got a crisp white letter back from them that said, unfortunately, we don't have room for you. Good luck with your life. And so I was pretty down after that for a couple of weeks. And a few weeks later, I got a letter from them saying, you were right on the cusp. If you go to this other school called New Mexico Military Institute, keep your grades up. It's in Roswell, New Mexico, even more remote than uh, 
than Los Alamos. That's where the, you know, the supposed aliens are. So spent a year there, kept my grades up, went to the Air Force Academy. At the Air Force Academy, I played baseball and was an intercollegiate boxer. And one of the big, big fears for anybody before they become a fighter pilot is that they're not going to pass the medical. So at the academy, about half the people would fail the medical. And the medical wasn't until your junior year. After your sophomore year, you're committed to the Air Force for five years. So they know what they're doing. So you sign on the dotted line, you're you're set for five years. And then junior year, the day before my medical, I was boxing and somebody hit my hit me in my ear and ruptured my eardrum. So I had to go to uh, through a bunch of different waivers and processes, but I eventually got a pilot slot. And after that, was off to the races, went to uh, a school called Introductory to Flight Training, where you're flying smaller prop planes, like they're called DA-20s. And it's just to see if you have the, the hands and the aptitude. And so about 20% of people get washed out there. Then went to Air Force pilot training where I flew the T-6 Texan II. It's almost like a P-51 Mustang, high-performance prop plane. I was just, I, I was hooked and I, and I knew this was, this was my calling, flying that airplane. So the first day of pilot training, there are about 30 of us in our class. The base commander came into the classroom and said, I want you guys all to close your eyes. How many of you guys want to fly fighter aircraft? And I raised my hand. He said, all right, open your eyes. All 30 people had their hand raised. And he said, two of you guys will fly a fighter. The rest of you will fly heavies if you're lucky. And after that, walked out. So that was our motivational pep talk. After that, off to the races. Uh, you fly a T six for six months and about seven people out of 30 are selected to go fly the T 38, a supersonic jet trainer built back in the fifties, really tiny wings still to this day, the hardest plane I've ever flown because it was underpowered. So they had to make it really aerodynamic, but that means it lands. It's very unstable landing. And then six months of that. And then I think it was three people from our class were selected to fly fighters. So, and then even after that, you have to go to another school learning how to employ the T-38. So you've been selected to fly F-16s. I got my top pick. You go to this other school where they still wash out 20% of people. So you, you've made it, but you haven't made it. And same thing with the centrifuge. So we have to make sure we can pull high amounts of G-force. So they put you in a, to this centrifuge that spins you around upwards of nine Gs. So I weigh 200 pounds, 230 with my gear on. If you've ever been in a roller coaster that's done a loop and push your head down, that's like two, three Gs. This is nine G's. So it's right on the edge of human consciousness because it's pulling the blood out of your brain. Afterwards, it looks like you have chicken pox on your arms because it's rupturing the blood vessels. Even your veins and arteries hurt. So it's a very strange experience. Some people had made it all this way and you get two shots. If you fail the first one, you get another shot the next day. And if you fail that, then you, you don't fly fighters. You go off and fly heavies. So heavies are tanker and transport aircraft. And then you finally make it to flying, uh, flying the F-16. So by the end of this, you know, you're like, where did everybody go? <laughs> so you're 230 pounds with your gear on at nine G's. You're what, like 2000 pounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. The jets are incredible. The performance is incredible. It's like the best way to describe it is you are in control of this roller coaster and you can go wherever you want and they turn so tight that it can make you pass out, which is a, is a huge problem. And that's why a lot of people are like, oh, you're just sitting in a seat. How difficult can it be? But you're trying to stay awake because if you lose enough blood, you'll pass out. And at the speeds we're flying, you'll be incapacitated for about 30 seconds. You'll probably impact the ground in about 20 seconds. And unfortunately, we've had about one pilot a year killed for the last 30 years 
to what's called a G induced loss of consciousness where you just pass out and you never wake back up because you impact the ground. Wow. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about the technology, but it also surprises me with how advanced, but isn't the F-35 like the most advanced piece of military equipment known to human existence? Well, at least to, to us civilians, I, I guess. I'm surprised there isn't any system to not so much mitigate it because you can't help the human component, but to safely land or take control back the aircraft from a computer standpoint. There actually is. So starting in 2016, we started implementing software called uh, auto ground collision avoidance system. So if you're pointing at the ground, it will recover the, the jet 250 feet above the ground. So I've seen some of the tapes. It's already saved 15 people. So wow. it's it, since 2016. So it, it doesn't work all the time because it has to map the ground and it also doesn't control the throttle. So if you stay passed out for a long enough time, you'll just stall and go into the ground. So it's definitely not 100%, but it is a bit of a safety net. Not all aircraft have it, but it is a, a really good piece of technology. So you're going through all of this. That's unbelievable, but it also makes sense that there's like cut, 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 cut. It's like finer, uh, this filter getting finer and finer. What are total flight hours that you're logging before you actually become an uh, official fighter pilot? I assume my a good friend of mine, he's a commercial pilot for American Airlines, and obviously they have to log so so many hours. What is it for for you guys? I assume it's even higher. It's probably less because we we only fly the amount of time we have until we are low on fuel. So these these flights, unlike a passenger plane, which can be twelve hours, these flights are typically about an hour long, especially like the T thirty eight doesn't have much fuel. So you fly until you're low on fuel and you come home. Now we will fly like combat missions where we have a tanker following us along. So it's essentially a, a flying gas station that is a uh, air converted airliner filled with fuel. And so that would extend our missions to sometimes eight hours crossing the Atlantic. It would be 10 plus hours. But uh, going through pilot training, it's actually pretty amazing. We take somebody who's never flown off the street and they are flying combat missions on the other side of the world within just a couple of years. And pilot training is maybe 250 hours. Now, each one of those hours is painful and you're learning a lot because you're going out with another instructor. You're probably briefing for about an hour, prepping probably about three hours prior to the flight. And then after the mission, we'll spend two to six hours debriefing that mission, even though we only flew for an hour, hour and a half. And we'll go through everything. Sometimes we'll listen to the same radio call 10 times to find a way to do it better the next time. So there's a lot, a lot of learning that goes in for each one of those flight hours. I feel like there's a lot that anybody could learn. Obviously, your, your book, right, brings a lot of this into civilian life. But this debriefing piece, how many of us just rip through things and never analyze what just happened to correct going forward? Is this a habit that's translated to your personal life? I'm sure maybe not as excessive or robust, but has that format transitioned into some of the things that you do in your personal life, reflecting, looking back, analyzing what happened? How can I improve moving forward? Without a doubt. Yeah. If you ask any fighter pilot, what What's the key to the learning process? It's the debrief. And that's something that I find in the civilian world that people don't do a whole lot of. And it doesn't need to be two to six hours. It can be a, as short as five minutes. So what I tell people is for yourself and for your organization, just write down three things that did well, three things that you can improve upon. It takes five minutes. And over time, you're going to get significantly better. But the key is always having time dedicated to debriefing. That helps for a bunch of different reasons that we can go into of being able to stay in the present moment and different things like that. But 
just have a five minute, you know, if you call it five minutes, you only do one minute. So call it a 30 minute chunk after an important event and debrief it both individually, how you can get better and organizationally. And I think that's huge. And we've had a lot of different organizations come in. We've had the CIA, we've had NASA astronauts, we've had CEOs come in to really analyze our debriefing process. And they've been able to successfully, we have, for instance, we've also have uh, someone just sent me the bills, Buffalo bills. They're using my book to help with their debriefing process. So how cool is that? It is a kind of a, it's a universal skill that anybody can improve upon. That is amazing. The Buffalo Bills bringing that to your attention. Does someone take a photo of that and send that to you? How, how did you How did you find that out? Or was it a testimonial or a review on Amazon? Yeah, they they tagged me. So there's a there's a photo on Instagram. I'll probably put it up on LinkedIn. But uh, their defensive line they they ordered 20 copies and they're all focusing on the book. So it's it was a pretty cool picture. They had it in the the end zone and then Buffalo Bills in the background. And they liked it so much that they ordered a whole bunch of books. So, you know, as we were talking earlier, the feedback loop is so long for writing a book. So it was really exciting to to finally see this getting out there and, and to people for people to use it. That's amazing. So the physical and the the mental demands on on you and fighter pilots, how do you maintain you know, peak physical condition and mental agility? You know, are there any specific training routines or practices you follow to stay prepared for the challenges that that you face or other pilots that, you know, practices that they deploy as well? For sure. So that's been a big emphasis of fighter pilots and the Air Force for the last 10 years or so. Because when I first came into the Air Force, I kind of liken it to a little bit like golf back in the day. You didn't have athletes training for peak performance. And so the F4 fighter, the Vietnam era fighter, it had an ashtray in it. And sometimes when I first came into the Air Force, older fighter pilots would say, oh, to handle the G's, just smoke a cigarette before you fly, because that'll increase your blood pressure and and uh, and shrink your, your arteries a little bit. So we've transitioned from that over the last uh, 10 years to really a, a big emphasis on human performance. Everybody, we have nutritionists, we have physical therapists, we have trainers, Everybody is focused on on human performance, and it's it's important. So, like I said, we've lost thirty people over the last uh, last uh, couple of decades to G induced loss of consciousness. And for instance, just being three percent dehydrated can reduce your G tolerance time by fifty percent. So, all of this goes back to the physical side. So, we do a lot of uh, high intensity interval training, do a lot of cardio to be able to recover because the G forces, you know, will will be high Gs for. 30 seconds for 60 seconds, then we'll reset. We'll start the maneuver over again. So you're going all out. And I actually had a chance to be part of a study that measured the heart rate of fighter pilots. And even when you're flying straight and level, so this really surprised me, even when we're flying straight and level, our heart rates are about hundred to 120 beats a minute. And that's just from the cognitive demand of just being focused on, on everything going on. But it, during these, these dog fights, your heart rate spiking to 180 plus beats a minute. So the physical aspect is huge, especially the the fatigue. It goes back to nutrition a lot. So making sure that you're in good shape. The way I like to think about it is probably most fighter pilots can pull 10 and a half, 11 Gs, but each stressor on your life, if you don't eat well, if you don't sleep well, if you're not hydrated, if you have a lot of distractions at home, that lowers it. And it just takes one time for you to be at eight and a half Gs and you pull nine Gs for it to be all over. So that's from the physical side, it's extremely important. And it, it's it's a kick in it's a kick in the ass. Uh, I had a chance when I was flying the F-16 to give about a dozen non-pilots uh, rides in the back seat. 
almost all of them threw up and all of them felt terrible afterward. They had a huge smile on their face, but all of them felt terrible afterwards because it's just such a such a raw, visceral, uh, rough experience. But uh, there is a high physical demand. But all of that carries over to the cognitive side because ultimately as fighter pilots, what we're doing is we're making thousands of decisions each flight, often with incomplete information and lives on the line. So especially in the F-16, we had almost no autopilot. So you're flying that combat missions for upwards of eight hours. It's like taking a test while driving uh, as well for that long. And you're going from firefight to firefight. So everything that you remember before, you're having to to forget and learn uh, what's going on with the new firefight going on. So it's a very, very high cognitive demand. And actually, we had a lot of pilots uh, over the years impact uh, the ground, unfortunately, coming back from sorties. That's statistically the most dangerous part because you're, you're just been uh, really busy. Your adrenaline has been high and you're finally coming down from that. You take a moment to uh, relax and uh, you you impact the mountain. So so the human performance aspect's huge. Has that changed for you over the years after, you know, flying all uh, over all these years? And what I mean by that specifically is, is that level of exhaustion, you know, I was reading a study, uh, just some filler here that normally cognitive material alone is not enough to actually drain us. It's the emotions that are attached to it that are the significant driving force. Have you found over the years that after flights, after some of these missions, did you feel less drained, the same, more drained? Did it, you know, was there any acclimation, I guess, is what I'm getting at for you after all these flights or is like this, you know, 10th mission was the same as number one. I felt so exhausted just because of that load every single time. It gets better. So we have a saying in the fighter pilot community that you lose 20 IQ points as soon as you put on your helmet. And so what looks easy on the ground at 1G gets extremely difficult when you're flying at the closure rates that we fly at a mile every three seconds. So it is it is challenging, especially for new students when they get up in the air. There's a lot of stress on them. There's uncertainty. Am I going to be able to accomplish this? Especially if you get into combat, like people's lives are on the line and they're relying on you, especially in like an F-16 or F-35, you have a tremendous impact on the battlefield. So yes, there's there's a lot of emotions, a lot of cognitive load, but over time it gets better. And that's that's why we're trained so hard in the Air Force. We have exercises called Red Flag, where we bring together hundreds of assets because Red Flag was started back in, during Vietnam when they were finding that they were losing the most number of pilots during their first 10 missions. If they could just get them through their first 10 missions, they had like a 10 times higher chance of surviving through the rest of their deployment. So it's really significant amount. So red flag was started to replicate war as closely as we could in a training environment. And that's probably the biggest misconception that people have of air combat. They see Top Gun, four jets going out, doing their thing, or other uh, aviation movies where it's like a 1v1 cage match. It's Tom Cruise in his F-14 going up against the worst threat out there, you know, the enemy, Tom Cruise. But it's completely different in actual air combat. It's hundreds of us all going in and we're different backgrounds. So some are those intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance aircraft. Some are fighter aircraft, different types of fighter aircraft, bombers. It's even multi-domain. You have people in the space cyber world on the ground, all working together. So it's this like three-dimensional chess game that you're going after the enemy. And they're doing the same thing with you, with the fog and friction of war, they're trying to confuse you. So it gets uh, 
it gets pretty complex out there. You have to be at the absolute, the 1% of the 1% when it comes to being on top of your, your game. The other thing that I've, I've been fascinated with is for most people, multitasking is actually not a good thing, right? There's actually a lot of science out there that shows that for most people, there's a significant decrease in return based on the level of output. However, for you and other fighter pilots, there's a high level of situational awareness, you know, monitoring the aircraft, scanning the airspace, generally staying just hyper vigilant at all times. How do you manage this constant state of awareness while focusing on a multitude of things? That's I know you're trained for it, but that's extremely overstimulating. Yeah, you have to simplify. So I think there's actually a lot of carryover to the civilian world because we're all inundated with more things than we can do with social media, with email invites, with Slack invites, you really have to pare everything down. And for us, it depends on the phase of the mission and what threat we're going after, but we call it our cross check. So we don't necessarily multitask, but you're moving your, your cross check. You're focusing on different variables and you will figure out one thing, move to the next. You can't focus on one thing too long. It's almost like a juggling plates, you know, one thing's going to, if you focus on one thing too long, the rest is going to come crashing down. So you really have to find the few key things to focus on. And that's, that's one of the things I focus on the book on is, uh, understanding power laws because most things in life are not linear, even though that's the way we we've evolved. If you walk 30 steps, you're now 30 steps away. That's how our brains really understand the world around us. And so, I think it's really important to understand nonlinear behavior, in particular, three different types of power laws. So one is exponential growth. I think most of us are familiar with that through investing or uh, with how quickly technology and computers are progressing. Another is the law of diminishing returns. So that's why uh, you know you go to the gym after a few years, you you start having smaller gains, and why all Olympians are you know, for the hundred meter dash are all within half a second because they're experiencing the law of diminishing return. And lastly is the long tail uh, effect, which, uh, you know, is similar to the Pareto 20 or 80, 20 principle, as well as, uh, understanding for instance, why a few, uh, shows or a few languages really take over from everything else. So really understanding those three power laws can help you to, uh, to understand what to focus on. And that's what we do flying as a quick example, we, if we have to eject, so we have, we're sitting on a rocket seat and if everything goes wrong, you can eject. And so we have a whole bunch of different things that we need to do to, uh, to make sure we're ready to eject. But the number one thing you can do is to just slow down because speed is associated non-linearly with, uh, force. So as the speed doubles, the force goes up by a factor of four. So if you're flying at, for instance, Mach 1.6, it's 300 times the force of, going 75 miles an hour. So it's nonlinear. So you can just, if you just slow down, that's the biggest thing you can do to increase your probability of surviving. The irony of slowing down, metaphorically speaking, while flying in this jet, I just think is so, so funny. So funny. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. You, you got to slow things down for your brain. You know, you can always slow things down with your left hand. As we say, you don't need to be going fast, slow down. Sometimes that can give you a opportunity to, to catch back up. Mm. Speaking of slowing down, can you share uh, any particular challenging scenarios? I'm sure there's plenty where you had to make split second decisions. Like, how did you approach those situations? And, you know, what were some of the biggest lessons that, that you walked away from those scenarios? 
So there's a there's a spectrum of decision making. So there are split second decisions. Sometimes when we're planning missions, we're planning years into the future. So that's really one of the things that I focus on is how much time do you have to make a decision? And probably the most the, the quickest decisions that I've had to make are when two aircraft are closing at each other about a mile every three seconds. So throughout my career, I've had quite a few times where there have been close passes. You can imagine these red flags, there are hundreds of aircraft flying and you just all of a sudden see a plane full of jet in your face. And that's more instinct. You get, you got to get out of the way. I would say the, the most challenging decisions that I've had to make, one was I was coming back from a mission in Afghanistan we were supporting a, a troops in contact situation in the Helmand province in southern Afghanistan, coming back, and we didn't have any alternate airfield to land at. And we knew that that night because uh, Kabul International Airport was shut down. Usually we have a, an alternate airfield to land at. And one of the runways at the primary airfield, Bagram, was shut down. So we were landing on the smaller runway, only one runway. So we had to dump a bunch of fuel to be able to land there. That meant that we had no other place to go. And so they had bought off on that. They said that it was worth the risk to be able to support this troops in contact situation. And so as I was coming into land, I started seeing what looked like orange glowing ropes going into the sky. And after six hour mission, I was kind of confused on what that was. I thought sweat had run into my eyes. And what I realized was that the base was under attack. It was being mortared. And we have these Gatling cannons around the base that try to shoot these mortars down. And so they're incredible. They shoot 20 millimeter rounds. They're like little grenades. They shoot them, I think, four, 4,500 rounds a minute. So it's it's crazy. And so it looked like these large orange glowing ropes and I was pointed towards me. So I hit max afterburner on the jet. I had my wingman with me as well, about a mile and trail of me. And so we climbed above it, but that burned all our fuel. So the mortars ended up hitting the airfield and we weren't allowed to land anymore because if we hit one of those potholes, you could cartwheel the jet. So we had to to make some decisions. So I, I talk in the book about it. Really, it comes down to expected value, finding what's the good that's going to come out of the situation. What's the probability of that happening minus what's the bad times the probability of that happening. And so we had a couple of different options that we could work through. One was just landing on the damaged airfield. Another was trying to skyhook, as we call it, getting really high and gliding into another base. And the last uh, that we ended up going with was trying to do a kind of a high risk refueling with a tanker that was in another region of Afghanistan. And so we were fortunately able to make that happen, but we only, I only had about a minute left of fuel when uh, I finally hooked onto the tanker. I feel like I'm sweating just listening to this scenario. How? I know it's through all this extensive training, but you're keeping your heart rate down, your level, you're clear-headed. What goes into some of that to stay in that position? Because I, I assume, obviously, I don't have any of this training, but if I were to approach jumping in an aircraft and piloting the thing, one, I'd be extremely overwhelmed, let alone make a decision while up in the sky, running out of fuel, the base is getting attacked that we are supposed to land in. You have to communicate to multiple aircraft team members and assessing this entire situation piece by piece. How do you stay in this level-headed clarity mindset? So the first is you don't rise to the level of your expectation. You fall to the level of your preparation. And so we extensively train in the Air Force going through those brutal debriefs. We really try to make the training scenarios 
more challenging than what we're going to experience in combat because you do have that loss of 20 IQ points as soon as you get into combat. So there's no silver bullet for for being able to do something that you haven't practiced. That being said, there's a lot of little techniques that we use. One one challenging thing that people have, uh, new pilots, are to refuel from these tankers. So you're taught throughout your entire career never to touch another aircraft, and now you're doing that on purpose, fully manually, at 350 miles an hour. So a lot of new pilots are freaked out the first couple times they do that. So what we train them to do is to do box breathing. So five seconds in, hold five seconds, five seconds out, hold five seconds, really trying to activate the parasympathetic nervous system and to uh, bring them back into an optimal zone of performance. Other things you can do is wiggle your fingers, wiggle your toes, because you know we say that you know when you're gripping the stick, you're trying to squeeze the paint out of it. So just just relax a little bit. You don't have that fine motor acuity when you're really stressed out. So so those are some techniques that we use. Another thing is people get tunnel vision, and it's not just you're focused on one thing, but you literally get tunnel vision by uh, not being able to see things on the peripheral vision. So what we'll teach new pilots are to look on the uh, exterior, really push that vision out so that you can detach from that moment and really observe it from almost a third person perspective. So those are some of the techniques that we use for, for new pilots, especially when they're tanking, but those skills carry over to if you're in combat or pretty much, pretty much anything from a high stress perspective. Mm, Those are, those are great tools. What do you think, you know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that technology advancement has been just crazy and military civilian the whole nine yards looking ahead where do you see the the future of flight aviation are there any you know emerging trends or technologies that you believe will significantly shape the fields in the coming years yeah so we've always kind of been on the leading edge of technology essentially what i'm doing is i'm surrounded by this suit of technology that allows me to be thousands of times more capable on the battlefield and so there's a lot of different trends. Well, first off, the F-35 is incredible. It's, it's an amazing piece of technology. It's stealth, so it's very difficult for other people to see us. It has amazing sensors that can see out to the horizon. So it's almost like, it's almost like playing football and you're invisible. So it's, it's almost not even fair flying in the F-35. We also fuse all that information together. So in the F-16, it was like a rat's nest of technology, 80s, 90s, 2000s technology. And so the pilot's head was constantly scanning all over the place. F-35 makes it really simple. It boils everything down to a green dot if it's a good guy, red dot if it's a bad guy. And then lastly, we pass that information off. Like We're going to have those F-16s, F-15s that were designed in the 70s until at least the late 2040s. So that means that we have to work together as a team. So we're the newest, latest, uh, advanced stealth fighter, fifth generation fighter. So we need to find a way to work together to raise their game because 80% of the air force are those older aircraft, legacy aircraft. So we uh, pass that information off to them to make them a better asset. So trends going into the future, really AI is a big one, autonomous drones. Now there will be fighter pilots flying for a long, long time. I'm a huge proponent of technology, but it just isn't close to being able to replace a fighter pilot. Now, it may be one fighter pilot going out with two drone wingmen, something like that, but we still have a long ways to go before it's a fully autonomous battlefield. But one of the points I try to make in the book is there's a lot of similarity and holdover from flying in the suit of technology to what we're doing in everyday life. So all of us have a smartphone in our pocket that can do the job of dozens of people from just 
you know, a decade ago. Same with our computers, our cars. A modern combine harvester can harvest crops hundreds of times faster than by hand. So I really try to make the point that decision-making is becoming even more of a critical skill. We're leveraging this technology to power and leverage our decisions. And, and a good example of that is the average human burns 90 watts of electricity, and yet the average Westerner uses 12,000 watts of electricity. That energy goes into leveraging our decisions and uh, makes us a far more capable than we could be in the past. And with the rise of AI, it's only amplifying. There are reports right now at Silicon Valley that the next billion dollar company is going to be run by three or fewer people. Imagine that back in the 1800s, it would have taken 100,000 people to do that. Now, three or fewer people are going to be able to do that within the next decade. So I think there's a lot of crossover I don't remember where I saw it. I was reading an article that an AI company specifically that appointed a CEO that was getting paid $0 a year because that CEO was AI and it outperformed the market over in Europe, which is just incredibly amazing. I'm, you know, I'm bringing on a couple of, of guests who own AI companies and specifically my hypothesis or belief with AI, I like to a realistic optimist, but I truly think that AI is going to enable us as humans to focus on bigger missions because we were not meant to sit behind a computer, type away all day and do these small trivial things. And so the plus that I see is that we are able to focus on these bigger pieces of life, more purpose-driven, things that are more fulfilling than what we're currently doing, this kind of manual labor, if you will. And in some cases, obviously, AI has started and robots have started to replace the manual aspect of it. But to your point about you know AI as kind of wingman, is it because the human or the technology is not even remotely close to be able, being able to do this processing power of a human being and what you have to do to make decisions in the air real time? That they're just, we're not even in the same galaxy as far as that is concerned. Yeah, the human mind is incredible. It's, it's so creative. It thinks critically. AI does a great job of regression, but it struggles when the conditions change. And so air combat War in general is one of the craziest environments. There's a lot of fog and friction in war. So I think we're seeing that with some of these autonomous ride companies. You know, it's getting better. There's Waymo and things like that. They, they go with a brute force approach of just mapping out the streets. But imagine if I said, what if I gave you, Scott, a million dollars to disrupt that Waymo, a specific Waymo or a Tesla, I bet you can figure out how to do that. I bet you would paint the lines into telephone poles. I bet you would shine lasers into the sensors. I bet you would try to jam it and hack it. And so that's really the struggle when you're trying to have autonomous AI run in the battlefield. Because first of all, it needs to be autonomous because any system can be jammed, especially if you're going to war on the other side of the world, they're going to be able to jam those signals. They're going to be able to shoot down those satellites. So those systems are going to have to make decisions on their own. And you're fighting a thinking adversary that is extremely creative, that's going to go after whatever weakness you have, whether it's being able to hack the program, whether it's being able to jam different sensors, whether it's being able to confuse it in a multitude of different ways. It, it really takes it to the next level when you have a thinking adversary specifically trying to target your decision-making. Yeah. That's a really, those are really good points. I, on your, your spare time, you have a career that is anybody from the outside looking in would be, well, that's kind of the height of excitement. You have one of the most dangerous job in the world. First of all, being in the military, but then what you do specifically flying a plane, even more dangerous, 
what makes your hair stand up on your on your arm? Because you're in this multi-million dollar jet with people's lives in your hands, like you were saying earlier, on a mission that your margin of error is almost nothing. Going on a roller coaster for you doesn't, I assume, do anything. So, so what else do you engage in? Maybe it's the mentally stimulating aspects of life that you seek out that push your intellect. What, what is it for you? You know, I really don't think actually being a fighter pilot is the most dangerous thing in the world. I think somebody who's probably riding a motorcycle every day on the highway, that's probably more dangerous. So I think I like to think in terms of, you know, statistically is the the most risky thing and go down the list. So we actually haven't lost a lot, a lot of fighter pilots. We, we lose some from time to time, but I think if you're able to stay focused and stay in that kind of high performance zone and you know, you, you don't lose focus. I think you have a high chance of being able to survive through all, all those missions and all those flights. In terms of what excites me, you know, nothing physically can really match flying the F-35, this roller coaster that you can go wherever you want. So when I was young, I liked to, to drive fast and drive fast cars and things like that. But as I've gotten older, I really, I really more enjoy learning things. I like reading things. I mean, being an author, I sat in this office, I wrote for 500 days in a row. So it was painful, about four hours every day, just sitting here. So I like pushing myself in different ways. Like I, I think I've kind of checked the box on on going fast and doing that stuff. So I like to learn different aspects of, of different things and uh, push myself. So writing this book, absolutely pushing myself. The longest thing I'd ever written before this was about 10 pages in college. So this was writing 10 pages every week and it all had to to sync together with the rest of what I was doing. So yeah, just things that scare me and things that uh, that push me. That's that's what I enjoy. Yeah. When when you're driving on the highway and you pull off the highway, you're doing 75, 80, wherever you are, and you pull off the highway, you're like, oh, wow, it feels like I'm going extremely slow. I imagine hopping off of the jet, jumping in your car, even if you're going 80, you're like, are we even moving here? What's what's going uh, on? It's so slow. <laughs> it's got to be so weird. Yeah, I, I flew in the the... Southern California Air Show. And so we took two F-35s out there and was able to do a bunch of maneuvers. And it took us like 20 minutes to get out there. And then a few weeks later, we made a similar trip, my family and I, and it took us like five hours. So that's the biggest thing is is the time to go to these different places completely change. When I'm flying F-35, pretty much we can go to the Mexican border from Phoenix in maybe 15 minutes, 10 minutes. And, and in the car, that would take... That would take hours. So yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's a completely different experience that you really have to uh, to divorce yourself from. Final kind of piece here. You 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 have another kid you're expecting. You said what your first one's three years old, right? Correct. What from just your experience, everything you've you've learned in the Air Force? What are some values that you're like? I really want to instill this in my children because it brought so much of a different perspective elevated me in my life brought me clarity brought me stability mentally what are what are some of those things that you're focused on instilling in them i want them to be clear independent thinkers i want them to think for themselves and sometimes that's really challenging because being a parent we have multiple goals you want your life to be a little bit easier but i always try to come at from the perspective of how do i want this person to be when they're 25 35 years old so i think I think uh, allowing, for instance, my son to to kind of explore the space, to get into a little bit of trouble, to understand things on his own is a lot more valuable than me just 
you know, putting my thumb on him and forcing compliance. I don't think that translates well to being an adult. So I want them to be clear thinkers, to think on their own, and I want them to be independent as well. I think those are some life skills that are critical that will be challenging as a parent, but that will pay off a lot as they're adults. Those are perfect. Those are perfect. Well, this has been remarkable. Where can people find the book that just launched three days ago? And where can people uh, follow you in your continual journey? So you can find the book anywhere anywhere you get books. So it's it's been well-received. It was a bestseller for Barnes & Noble, number one bestseller on Amazon. Uh, somebody just sent a picture of it in a in the a airport in London. So it's getting out there. It's being translated into multiple languages. So I've been really blown away with the feedback anywhere you get books. You can you can get it. It's called The Art of Clear Thinking by Hazard Lee, H-A-S-A-R-D. And then my social media, I like to post uh, a lot of things about decision making as well as cool aviation clips. You can find me at Hazard Lee, H-A-S-A-R-D-L-E-E on YouTube, on Instagram, all the social media platforms. Nice. How's your wrist feeling? I saw you jumped into a Barnes and Noble and just started signing as many as many copies of your book as you could. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's a fun thing to do. So I try to sign as many copies as I can. I've signed a lot a lot of book plates. I actually went uh, supersonic with a whole bunch of different book plates, and I signed them all. And so those are being mailed out to a lot of people that pre-ordered. And I think the publisher is putting them into some of the books going out now. So it's uh, yeah, it's uh, just been training for that. Just excited that the book's being well-received. People are really uh, gearing up and buying it for graduation with graduation season. I think those new graduates need a, a toolbox for making good decisions and Father's Day. So that's what surprised me. Uh, and I guess it's similar. Being a father compared to being a fighter pilot, there's a lot of uncertainty, minimal sleep, lives are on the line. So that's been a pleasant surprise. That's awesome. Well, congrats, man. That's got to feel really good, you know, beside everything else that you've accomplished in your life. And uh you know, thank you for your service. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for the book. And thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into a stealth fighter pilot's timeless rules for making tough decisions with Hazard Lee. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at Motivated Scott. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday. Thursday for new episodes. I love you all and thanks so much for listening. Motivated Mind is a legacy division.